0: Hello, and welcome to Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. On this week's design discussion, game designers Peter Gussis and Michael Kelly will discuss a board game and have a related design discussion.
1: Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Today we have a special guest. Well, I don't know how special, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> hey, everybody. I'm Chris Powers. Uh, I'm on the Slack channel. Uh, you might have heard me have a little tidbit in the, uh, the year-end review, but super glad to be joining you guys to uh, talk about this next game.
2: Yeah, Peter was pretty much immediately jealous of your voice, Chris, when <laughs> he heard your, your video clip, and I can't say I was not either. So, yeah, if for nothing else, we had to have you on for your voice, but also for your excellent opinions on games,
1: and uh, we think great taste from what we've seen in the Slack so far. Well, you know, I've been told that I have a voice for radio, and I have a face for radio, so I think we're in good shape here. (laughs) No comment. But what I will comment on is today's
0: review game, Here's a Terranoth, by the Saddler Brothers, published by Fantasy Flight Games. And our design discussion this week is on the rest actions that certain games have. I know this one definitely has it as one of your four options during your turn, but also games like Gloomhaven have a rest action as well. And I know we've kind of played around with rest actions in some of our previous games as well. So we'll kind of talk about our experiences too. But before we get too far into things, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know we, we got to know you from the
1: Slack. We've heard some of your preferences, but do you have a favorite co-op of all time? Favorite co-op of all time? Um, oh boy, that that is a tricky one. Um, you know, I, I got into co-ops, it's probably been maybe six years or so. I found that I've been married for 13 years now, and so my wife and I, we both always enjoyed playing games, played a lot of Settlers and Catan and um, uh, Carcassonne, things like that back in the day. But eventually, we found that the competitive nature of the games was wearing away at the relationship. <laughs> oh, <I> think, <laughs> um, it was actually, though, uh, oddly enough, it was a game of Canasta that just broke the camel's back. Like, I don't know, I unfroze the deck and I scored a bunch of Canastas and it was over. It was just, (laughs) it was bad news. So when we first discovered, gosh, what was the first, you know, it was probably Forbidden Island. I think that was probably the first co-op that we played. Found Pandemic after that, found I think Flashpoint after that, and then on and on. You know, once we figured out it was a thing, got very excited about it. It was something that my wife and I could play together, and it was a lot of fun, and had other family members and friends get in on as well. So now it's, uh, you know, it seems like that's almost all I play. I played Twilight Imperium over the weekend. I don't know if you guys have played that one before, eight hour game. Oh, yeah. And the whole time, like, I was just thinking, man this would be cool if it was a co-op game. (laughs) And don't get me wrong, it is a great game. Like, I enjoyed myself, but I'm just like, man, I don't want to be whomping on the people around me. I wish we were all kind of whomping on the board, right? But yeah, definitely very excited to be talking about this game, Heroes of Terranoth.
0: It's funny you just played that, because I played the fantasy version in Tyranoth very recently, which is uh, Rune Wars, Okay, the old uh, fantasy flight game. I actually think it's still in print, but that is another epic, I think my son and I probably played for five hours to get a two-player game of that in, and just had a great time in that universe.
2: Oh, very fun. You know, it's funny you say that, Chris, about the, the negative feeling about whomping on your neighbor. And I hadn't thought about it in this terms, but it is something that's really nice about cooperative games, and I certainly play with my wife and kids, and that's what's kind of brought them to the forefront of my gaming habit. It's really nice that when I do something amazing in a cooperative game, I can fully celebrate with every single player at the table, not feel any negative feelings, not feel any concern that they might not be happy over what just happened. We can all have like a shared experience of joy at the same time. Whereas with a lot of competitive games, especially when I feel like the ability level is not too even, I feel like I I have to kind of couch my reaction. I can't be as happy as I want to be because then I'll be showing off and I'll be a bad (laughs) winner and... You know, that, that's, it's kind of like a, an emotional juggling game. And I'm sure some gamers don't care about that and just don't mind rubbing it in your face when they do something really great. And that's, that is, you know, sort of how they gain their pleasure. But even playing more co-ops, I've found that to be more true that I just kind of feel weird about playing competitive games and feel awkward in that situation.
1: Oh, absolutely. And so for this game that we played, right, and it's eight hours. I mean, this is an investment of your time of your entire day. And it was a pretty close game. Somebody squeaked it out, you know, and it was a little rough at the end. I mean, there was a lot of combat. There's a lot of conflict. Right. And I kid you not, you know, because everybody is fairly thoughtful of the game. But, like, the guy who won ended up sending an email out to the group just kind of be like, hey, guys, just want to say again, thanks for playing. It was really fun. I think it was really close. Like, (laughs) you could tell he, like, was almost kind of, like, trying to make sure, like, we're all cool, right? Will you come play games with me again? Exactly. Well, yeah, he was like, man, I'd love to play this like every every month. And I'm like, yeah, maybe once a year. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> uh, not to get
2: on too much of a tangent here, but you know, I used to be a theater teacher before I became an English teacher. Mm-hmm. And one of the big topics we would go over is status and how characters will have high and low status. And they'll kind of react to each other and relate to each other in different ways. But I always thought that the same stuff applied in life and that especially in competitive situations – one of the tough things that makes interaction awkward is that you never want your status to be too much higher than the other person's. Mm. Yes, you want to come out on top, but you don't want to demolish them at the same time or you uh, will come across to others as a negative, rude, hurtful person. So you want to like just slightly tilt that seesaw in your direction, but then you have to kind of undercut yourself and be self-deprecating and, and make fun of yourself to, to, so that you're not too high above them. But again, in cooperative games, you can all have that wonderful experience of raising each other's status and complimenting each other constantly and have, like, a sort of high-status experience all at the same time instead of, you know, constantly tearing each other down and going back and forth with
0: the sort of seesaw effect. Absolutely. It's a great way to put it. Well, thanks for joining us on Co-op, Cast. <laughs> <laughs> we, we review games here. <laughs> that, that was a... Uh, that was a full blown design discussion right there. Wow, good job, guys. I thought it was right more of a philosophy
1: beginning. discussion, but hey, we'll yeah. take them both.
0: <laughs> it's like so- social uh,
2: hierarchies and behavior. And all that kind
0: <laughs> of stuff. Yeah, I will say I agree with everything Mike said, unless I'm playing with him and Jerry, and then all bets are off. Like, <laughs> oh
2: man, P- Peter. Yeah, P- Peter. Peter gloated a bit in Betrayal Legacy after he shot uh, b- both of us with a crossbow, I believe. Or was Jerry the one who killed us with a crossbow? It's
0: No, no, that was me, but it's been a while since I've won since then, so I think Karma got its uh, revenge on me. Oh, yeah. Car- karma is a little girl
2: with a baseball bat, so... Alright. That, that was a disturbing image. We can- <laughs> Maybe we can cut that one out (laughs) or put that in the It suddenly got very dark. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Betrayal Legacy, everybody. Not cooperative. Very much not cooperative.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I'm going to close the podcast out for a second time.
2: (laughs) Okay. uh, So here's the Terranoth. Peter, you want to tell us a bit about (laughs) the theme of the game?
0: Yeah. So Terranoth is Fantasy Flight's... Well, it's their fantasy universe. It's very much Lord of the Rings-esque, but they do have a couple of creatures that are somewhat unique to their universe, although I'm sure people who know D&D or other fantasy games better than I do would recognize some of these creatures better than I do. But it is a world that they're trying to flesh out. They do something very similar to what they're doing with their Arkham world in that they share the heroes across their universes. So some of the heroes and villains you'll be facing, it's funny because I ran into Splig the other day when I was playing Rune Wars. And Splig is kind of one of the first guys you run into when you play Heroes of Tyrannoth. So I thought it was kind of interesting. I was like, oh yeah, I know that guy. They take their universe and it's a pretty generic fantasy universe, but they really do create characters that are shared across games. It's not only rune Wars runebound descent. I mean gosh I've seen I think uh,
2: <laughs> they're sort of playing they're playing Splig out too much. He was in uh, the descent app. he's in the descent game. I think he was in Legacy of Dragon Holt when I went into a mine that was goblin infested. Splig just had to be there too. <laughs> hey man. Splig gets around. I mean, he is like the king goblin, right? Right, but I mean, you know, you would think that there are multiple king goblins. Because Splig's sort of a joke in all of the uh, the thematic like places they place him in. And Tearing is a big place. You would think there would be a few other competing king goblins that might be better organized than him, but, you know, whatever. Splig, Splig has to, he's, he's just the obligatory joke goblin. He's got to crop up everywhere you can put him. Cool. Well, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about how the game plays? Sure. So. First of all, this is a evolution, re-implementation, I'm not sure what you want to call it, of the Warhammer Quest card game that was also designed by the Saddler Brothers and released by Fantasy Flight before they lost the Warhammer license from Games Workshop. So it has very similar play to that with a few differences. But in general, you'll play between two to four heroes. And uh, the main bit difference, kind of similar to what they did with Imperial Assault, is that with fewer heroes, they'll get to activate more frequently, and they have a larger life pool. But first you have the hero phase, where these players have four action cards in front of them, and the cards are attacking, exploring, aiding each other, and resting if you're injured, or just want to kind of help yourself out with a bunch of enemies. So you pick one action and you exhaust it so that you cannot use it again until you've used your rest action, which gets all your actions back. And you will roll a certain number of hero dice, these white dice, and usually it's two, although leveling up can get you three and the rest action is only one to start. You'll also roll a number of enemy dice, black dice, equal to the number of enemies that are engaged with you. So you have some enemy cards, these guys you're fighting in the shadows, and some right in front of each player. And the dice will determine how many successes you get for whatever action you're taking. And the effect of the successes depends on the card you're using. So if you're attacking, you'll deal some damage to somebody. If you're resting, you'll heal. And then the enemy dice might make the enemies attack you, might make the nemesis, which is the big boss of the uh, quest you're playing, do something negative to you. But that's the general feel of how you kind of resolve your turn. You pick an action card, you roll some dice, you might get some good effects, you might get some bad effects... And once all the players have done that, you have an enemy phase where all the enemies activate. And they have this really simple set of AI instructions using a small set of keywords. They might uh, move to engage you. They might run away from you. They'll often attack you or put uh, negative conditions on you. And once you've done all the enemies, you have the peril phase, which is sort of like a timer on the, the quest sheet. So each quest has like a little sheet that kind of has all the special rules for it. On the quest sheet, you'll move this token along, the peril token, and uh, as it reaches different places, certain events will happen. Often that'll give players the chance to upgrade their action cards so that they become more powerful versions with extra special effects. And uh, there's sort of like a branching upgrade thing there where each uh, class that you start with, uh, there's four in the game, can go one of two directions. And uh, finally you have the travel phase where... First of all, if you've explored enough, you can go to the next location. Most quests tend to have three locations and usually have to get to the last location to be able to actually win. And then also some of the locations will have special effects that happen during the travel phase. And that's basically it. Often the most common kind of victory conditions will be to either explore your way all the way through the location. So kind of escape from somewhere or to defeat the nemesis or both. Because usually the nemesis will show up at some point and he'll be an extra big baddie trying to uh, fight you
0: all. So that's the general gist of the gameplay of Heroes of TerraNoth. Alright, thanks Mike. That covers it pretty well. So, if you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. Chris brings in his own audience, I know that. so
1: we, uh, <laughs> We've got a lot of groupies, what can I tell you?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. We appreciate all his fans joining us today. <laughs> so- So if it is your first time joining us, we go through the top five things we think you should know about the game, starting with number five, which is the least important thing for us, and going all the way to number one, which we think is the most important thing you should know about the game. So Chris, being our guest and the one with all the groupies, what is your number five thing about Heroes of Tyranoth?
1: Cool. So my number five is that there are limited choices. Very limited choices, in fact. As Micah just said, usually there's four of them, those four cards that you have. I'm actually going to put this solidly in the good category, which may be surprising. Hmm. I like the limited choices. Maybe it's because I'm not that smart. (laughs) But there's something about getting away from analysis paralysis, having a reduced number of options available that I really like. Let me tell you about the first time I played Gloomhaven. I mean, the first time I get that hand of 11 cards, I think I was playing Cragheart, and 11 cards, top and bottom, 110 choices for that first play. Just picking the cards, let alone what you're going to do with the cards in order to <laughs> you know, get done. It took me games. It probably took me like four games to really get like familiar and like, comfortable with that character in those cards. Tons of fun, love the game, but boy, like it. it, uh, For me, it it took a little while. Same thing with Spirit Island. Again, love the game, marvelous, but like the amount of mental overhead that it took to get you know familiar with the game and to ramp up. I just walked three friends through the game. We played through you know a, a whole four player game. And, like, they hung in there, but I could tell that they were, they were overwhelmed by the number of <laughs> options that they had and, like, you know, trying to figure out how to use it. So seeing something like this, a limited number of choices, I just choose attack, explore, the aid, or the rest. Uh, really enjoy it. Cool. All right,
2: Mike. Yeah, first, before I get to my number five, I, I totally agree with you, Chris. I do think the game has really strong accessibility I played it with my six-year-old, which I do with a lot of these games, and it's one that he enjoyed. And we played again. Some of them don't go over that well. I tried to play Spirit Island with my six-year-old; It was not a success. <laughs> don't say uh, I am. Yeah, so I, mean, I I know you're all shocked that Spirit Island did go with a six-year-old. I was a little <laughs> bit off, a bit more than I could chew there. And you know what? I will say it was not my choice. He saw the game and was begging to play it. He regretted right. that. <laughs> he was like, "Let's watch a show instead." But my number five is the enemy variety in the game, and I think this is also a pro for me, so we're starting off with double good here. I really like the simple mechanics for the enemies that lead to very different effects on how they work in the game. I said that enemies will have a very simple, like, one to three things they do when they activate— they might engage you, they might run away, they might inflict damage on you, and they might have some other special ability that will be unique to their uh, type of enemy. So you kind of get, like, types. You get you get ranged enemies, and they're pretty easy to run away from because when you travel to a new location, all the people in the shadows, like the people who are waiting out of range, they uh, they disappear. They're gone. So ranged enemies have kind of their feel. They tend to do more damage. And then you have, like, these tanky guys that just try to block damage from other people. But what I love is that... It kind of relates to the dice mechanic, which I'll talk about later. But I like that they can have enemies that don't actually ever attack you, but have very high damage values. And when they're sitting in front of you and you roll that attack symbol on the enemy dice, they deal that damage to you. So you can have guys that really are just sort of like taunters, tanks sitting in front of you. You can have plinky guys from far away. You can have more general warriors who tend to do consistent damage. You have people who do different conditions. You have uh, different strategies for taking them on. And then the Nemesis. Nemesis is not sure of the plural there. They, Nemesi
1: perhaps? <laughs> nemes- yeah. They,
2: <laughs> uh, they, they also have all their special abilities and they have their own special effects. So I really like how with such a simple a set of rules, the enemies have a lot of variety. This is one place where I feel like the game can easily expand, add a few more conditions, add a bunch more stuff with the enemies. How much life they have, how much armor they have, how much damage they do, what their AI is. It's it's just a really nice way to make the games feel different, and in another nice step, uh, most of the scenarios have you randomly selecting which enemies you'll use each time, so you have nice replayability even out of the base box in uh, seeing like who, which enemies you'll fight and who you'll encounter, so definitely enjoy that quite a bit.
0: Cool, and my number five is very similar to what Chris is saying, and I think the game is very easy to pick up and teach. If you want to introduce this game to somebody, they don't have to know how the enemies work before they start. All they need to do is really understand what their four actions do, and that's really all it is. And everybody has the same four actions, so you're watching it. You know, even if you have a full group of new people, you're watching it happen around the table as it's coming to you. I mean, it's really intuitive and easy to pick up, and... After you pick one of those actions on your next turn, you don't have more actions, you have less possible actions. You know, the only real hard decisions for someone playing the game when it comes to, you know, a lot of facing a lot of things at once is when you're leveling up your character for the first time. You have two different subclasses you could level into, and then you have to pick one of the four cards in that subclass. But usually it's pretty obvious. So that one doesn't take a lot of time for most people either. I usually just say, hey, pick which theme you like better and go with that. So it, this game really is easy to pick up and teach and great for introducing people to a fantasy setting. There aren't too many of those in this
1: genre that are easy to pick up and play.
2: Yeah, good point on that. So, Chris, what's your number four?
1: So my number four is that there is a lot of cooperation in the game. It is a very cooperative game. And in fact, that cooperation and the interactions between the players are really necessary they're crucial I think it was a few episodes ago you guys talked about some of the different kind of flavors of co-op and different levels of interaction the players might be having sometimes it's really light other times there's like a lot of interaction happening and I feel like in this game uh, because of the constraints that are placed on only having those four actions and once you use one it's burned, The aid action is what allows you to both provide another player with some of the bonus tokens that they can add to improve their dice rolls, as well as to uh, ready up one of their cards that they've already spent. And this is essential. This is essential, especially in a game that is very combat heavy, but you only have one combat action. It makes it uh, the only way to survive and the only way to win the game is to make sure that uh, you are regularly helping the other players to re-up those, usually the attack cards, although I suppose perhaps the Explorer as well for characters that are doing a lot of that. But that ends up being a, a key critical interaction and something that is, specifically when you're playing with four players, I think is a lot more fun. When you have four players, there's more possible combinations of like, this player can help that player, or they can choose to help the other player. In the two-player games, well, you know who you're going to (laughs) help. It's the other person. (laughs) So I found that that, that's one of the things I've enjoyed more about the four-player game than the lower count. It's great to have the game pushing those interactions that you know that the players already want to be having.
2: Now, I agree 100%, and that goes right into my number four, Although I focused a little bit differently and went right to the success tokens that you had mentioned. Okay. So I didn't cover this in the rules text, but the aid action especially will give characters these success tokens. And then a lot of these special character abilities will interact with them as well. And you can spend up to two of them before you roll for an action you're going to do. And they count as, you know, each one is an automatic success you'll get. So I like this for a lot of reasons. As Chris mentioned, tons of cooperation here lots of you know the aid action is forced to go to somebody else you have to figure out who needs the most help who's set up with the actions they have available to do whatever the scenario currently needs to happen i really like that uh, the cooperative nature of it but also i'm just a sucker for resource management and having finite resources and figuring out how to spend them in the most efficient way so these are a lot of fun, and and also, hey, it's a dice-based game. Not everybody loves that, but it's a great uh, form of luck mitigation. If you need an action to succeed, spend some success—that's <laughs> a hard word to say—spend <laughs> some success tokens, and you'll be good to go. So I I like the cooperation in general. Totally agree with you, Chris. But specifically, the success tokens I really enjoy.
1: Now, Mike, one question about that: How do you feel about the two-token maximum? Adding only two tokens to any given action that you take.
2: It is really interesting. Uh, I I played that wrong, I think, my first two games, Hmm. and it was not as interesting because, first of all, it it unbalanced the game, like being able to do five damage at once to uh, the nemesis, for example, who usually survives based on their armor, like bypassing all that armor with one huge attack made the uh, the missions too easy. But also, I, I like limitations on how I spend my resources. (laughs) This is a weird uh, comparison, but like when I play Texas Hold'em, I like uh, playing Texas Hold'em where I can't go all in. I like where I'm forced to kind of consider, uh, you know, whether I want to go up to the maximum amount each time. So I I like limitations on my choices, kind of like you did with the the four cards limiting the the scope of your tactics from turn to turn.
1: Yeah, I found the one interesting thing with that as well is that it was easy to want to keep aiding the same guy, like maybe the heavy hitter, the warrior, or the mage, and you want to like, keep aiding them so that they could bring up their attack. But what I found was that you're pooling up these tokens on them, which is handy so that they can use them for those bigger attacks. But now they've got seven on their card, and it's going to take them four turns just to, to use those. And so, well, and, it, and it I think you can
2: only have uh, five max.
1: Yes. Well, then I probably play that wrong.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but that that's a great point. I never thought about that. But it also forces you to spread your aiding around more because you literally cannot, you know, the person cannot use the tokens quick enough to let them be, like, the focus
0: of all the aiding. So, yeah. Yeah, really good point, man. Well, I'm going to disagree a little bit on that because when you aid somebody, you're really only giving them two or three tokens at a time. If the fighter attacks the first turn, uses two tokens... Then one of the other three people aids him, then he fights again his next turn, another person aids him, fights again, another person aids him, you're not really going to run into that problem. So, I mean, unless you're aiding three times in a row, which doesn't make sense anyway because you want to help untap those cards, I don't think that limit really is as much of a limit as, as you guys are making it out to be. Well, maybe you should just roll
1: better, Peter, because I get
2: three or four or five successes every time I aid.
1: <laughs> I think it might be, maybe it's recency bias. I did just the last game of this I played. I was using the mage, I forget their name, but it's the one where if you didn't spend a token, you earn a token. Yes. And so they were generating some of their own tokens, plus they were having some tokens thrown on. So I did end up with uh, with a handful, but you know what? Maybe I should have played better. <laughs>
0: All right, so my number four is that there's a lot of mission variety with very limited resources. And I'm saying this in a good way. So what I mean by limited resources is they don't have that many buttons to turn, but they actually do a pretty good job of turning them to make the missions feel a little bit different. Now, don't get me wrong. It really does devolve down to either killing the bad guy, so usually getting to the third location so you can face the bad guy and then killing him, or exploring your way through that third location. So I don't think they've done as great a job at that kind of mission variety. But what I do like is there are three different colors. It's red, blue, and green, and... As you take turns, the turn marker will end up on a red, blue, or green space, and something different will happen based on the color space it goes to. And so they set these timers throughout the game. Sometimes it'll bounce back and forth between the three. One of the missions, you get to choose which one you went to next. You just couldn't stay at the same one. So I really like how they... Introduced these story elements and kind of put a timer on the game and made these different actions different and added a little story flair to them just with that simple time track and adding in those kind of, I almost said random events, but they're not random. They're exactly the same. Every time you play the mission, the enemies and everything else may be different, but I did like how that time track worked and, uh, how they introduced those and made each scenario different based on that time track.
2: All right. Uh, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later, but Chris, what was your number three?
1: All right, so number three, I want to hone in on something Peter was talking about earlier, which is the upgrade cards. Largely, I like the upgrade cards a lot, and so this is uh, at certain points within the scenario, uh, you're going to be instructed or you're going to unlock the ability to take your plain, ordinary, lousy cards that you start with and swap them out for a new, hotter version of your choice. A few things I like a lot about this. One is that it gives it a little bit of that role-playing feel, a little bit of that kind of character progression feel, but it kind of a rapid pace. It's fun. You know, it's it's the sort of thing that in a Gloomhaven, you have to wait, you know, two or three, you know, episodes through in order to finally get like one new card or, or, or one <laughs> bell or whistle, right, that you finally get to use. And here you get it after like 15 minutes. I'm like, ooh, <laughs> something shiny to play with, right? So I think that's fun. I have a good time with that. I think it's very interesting that in a number of these scenarios, it has to be earned somehow. You're either spending some kind of tokens or you have accomplished something up to that point that then uh, gives you the benefit of these upgrades, but it's not a foregone conclusion. And so now you and the group have to make decisions about as far as the limited resources go that I have? Do I want to spend them in such a way that is going to allow me to get these upgrade cards? Or is there something more pressing and more immediate that I need to deal with? And uh, maybe we're going to have to hold off on, on our upgrade card. Some of the upgrade cards, I feel, are critical. Like, I don't know how you go without the attack one. And I don't know how you choose one of the other three before the attack. I don't think I have yet. Maybe you guys have a different experience. But it it makes a huge difference. You're up to three dice instead of two. And there are dramatic bonuses that are usually on top of that, that kind of redefine the character. One of the neat things about the way the upgrades work is that you have two different paths, uh, two different kind of motifs that you can take on. And once you've chosen a path, there are four upgrade cards in that, one for each of the slots, and you're kind of locked into that set. So when you choose the first one, you're choosing, well, I think like a, do I want to be like a barbarian or a knight, I think are the two options for a warrior, give or take. And they have a strong theme, which is fun. You can kind of get that flavor from those sets. My problem that I have with upgrade cards, which I suspect is going to be resolved with some kind of expansion in the future, is while I like the limited choices of only having four different kinds of actions, I actually really wish that there were more choices for the upgrades, because when I'm upgrading, I feel like I'm kind of defining my character, and I like to have more options that are going to be uh, particularly suitable for whatever the current situation is. And with only two options for that first card, and then after that you've chosen your set and you're really just locked down to one option for the next ones, uh, I don't get as much of that. So I am hoping that we see more sets of upgrades coming in the future.
2: Yeah, a r- lot of really good points there. You and Peter are both hitting on things that I'm going to talk about later. But actually, right now, my number three, I'm going to get into my pro for the scenario variety, which I think I like more than you, Peter, because some of the things you didn't think were as good, I think are actually stronger than you were saying. So not to reiterate too much, but I love the peril token. I love the peril effects. I find that the scenarios have great variety with that very simple mechanic of here are three colors and here's what happens when you reach them. I like that the vast majority of the scenarios, I think except for like the first one, let you have random enemies involved, random locations involved. They come with a lot of locations in the deck and a good number of enemies, so you do get a pretty different experience even playing the exact same quest a second time. I know that some people were really disappointed that while the Warhammer Quest card game was a campaign-based game, this one is not, and it's just one-offs. But I really like that. I mean, I wouldn't mind a campaign down the line. But here, I, I, I like, uh, like you said, Chris, kind of the progression, the quick feeling of getting stronger in every you know, hour-long play or however long it takes. And to your point, Peter, about the scenarios maybe being a little bit samey, I, I kind of disagree because they do have some really different ones. They have a couple that are sort of like defense missions where you have to move to different locations to, like, fight off the enemies. That one feels very different tactically because you are choosing the peril effects each turn instead of them kind of being just on a time track. There's this wacky one at the end where you, uh, you're, you like, caught in a time loop trying to kill a dragon, and that one's, like, super different than any of the other ones. So... I find the scenarios very varied, even in very varied, <laughs> even in uh, in what you're doing uh, from turn to turn. Like, yes, you're always playing cards and fighting and exploring, but what that exploration does can be vastly different from one scenario to another. For example, so yeah, I'm, I'm really impressed with the scenario design. I think it uh, bodes well for the potential expanded uh, history of the game in the future.
0: Yeah, I'll talk more about all those things in my final thoughts, but my number three is actually what Mike's number five was, and that's the enemy variety. The one thing that I love, and Mike kind of touched on a little bit, is this new trend toward kind of having a command line on each enemy card where it does something different. I think they do this a little in Arkham Horror, they definitely do it in Deep Madness, where it says, do A first, then do B, then do C. And it's this very simple set of instructions that can vary based on where the enemy is or or what the situation is. And they can even put special flavor text. You know, that's the great thing about these things being on cards is they can say, first, advance, and, you know, engage or whatever the word is, and then do a headbutt. Well, headbutt is going to be unique to this character, and right there on the card, it tells you what it does. And then, attack. So, it's pretty easy to figure out what those things are. There's only two or three generic ones, but then each character feels very different because of the special text they put on there and i just think it's a genius idea i love how they did it i guess gloomhaven kind of does it also they just have a deck of them where it's going to be different every single time but i don't mind that it's the same every time in these games especially these quick ones where you know you know exactly what they're going to do and it lets you kind of plan a little bit for it too so i don't know i i just love what people are doing with this variety and using this three action system to kind of determine how enemy ai works so i I really think it's clever
2: yeah we have had and it's interesting like I think <laughs> Deep Madness had it uh, Arkham Horror 3rd edition had it this one has it very similar kind of simple AI tracks and each time we both appreciate it but every time it's been higher for you so clearly that's like a
0: mechanic that you are very interested in yeah it, it really sings to me because I love simplicity I want to look at one card and I want it to tell me what to do and I want to follow a a structured path and so for me, that makes the AI really easy to do. And so that's why yeah, I, I don't want to spend more time thinking about what the enemy is supposed to do than actually taking my turn. So that, that's why I appreciate it, I guess.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, we had so many, I mean, I, I still think Gloomhaven's a great design, but the, the further off I've been from it, the more I don't necessarily love the enemy activation there, mainly because you have to draw a card for every enemy type every round and resolve it every round, which is just a lot of upkeep and more reading that I want. I kind of would prefer just consistent enemy AIs like uh, like you know, this game has. It's like really simple,
0: basic scripts. Yeah, I don't disagree with that, but I am glad at least it is that whole enemy type. Gosh, if you had to draw an AI card for every skeleton, that would drive <laughs> me crazy. But I
2: mean, I, I really love like thinking back to a, another kind of dungeon crawler-ish game, Gears of War. There you had the same thing where like you have unique cards for each enemy type, But you'd only draw one a turn, so not every enemy would activate every turn. Now, clearly, that's a completely different balancing of the game. But, yeah, definitely, I like that simplicity and straightforwardness maybe a little bit more than Gloomhaven's kind of kitchen sink of enemy activations all at once method.
1: Well, in Gloomhaven as well, uh, one of the things I found a little frustrating with some of those enemy activations is that they could vary so wildly, so wildly, and like I would uh, I actually wouldn't look through them first, like once I got to a new enemy, I'd just shuffle the deck, put it down, and just see what happened <laughs> and and then I, I would wish I hadn't because like <laughs> the things that they were doing were completely unexpected, totally threw off you know the, the idea of what I had for the turn, and so there is something to be said for just having something that is simpler and more straightforward, and something that you can kind of uh, build into the calculus of the game as you're thinking about the choices that you're going to make. Well, not to get into a whole design
0: discussion here, but the reason they can do that here more easily than something like Gloomhaven is because you have the dice aspect of it. So I think Gloomhaven wanted to add a little bit more randomness on the enemy turn. Although I guess here, I mean, Gloomhaven, you have the Fate deck, so never mind. I I guess that isn't as much of a factor as I thought it was. But for me, it looked like they were reaching for more variety in Gloomhaven just because they were You know, there was no dice rolling, and they wanted to have some kind of a random factor there.
2: What it's funny, (laughs) we are getting into a design discussion. I love the idea of like enemy AI decks that are very different, but again, I like one card a turn for it. You know, two other examples Kingdom Death Monster, which I've not played, but I've watched playthroughs of. You know, you face like one big enemy, and they have one card a turn, and it's very straightforward. You get like this crazy variety in what the cards do, but again, it's only one dude, you know, maybe with some minions, so it's pretty easy to resolve. And then also Sentinels, I much prefer the traditional way to play Sentinels of the Multiverse where there's one villain with one card a turn instead of the villains of the multiverse kind of expansion where you have a bunch of like mini villains and they each get a card every turn. I I like it with my enemy AI, even if it has variety, it's like variety on one card, let me be done, or, you
0: know, very simple AI so that having multiple cards doesn't make it uh, too onerous. Who knew Here's the Tyrannoth would have us having three design discussions in one episode?
1: <laughs> All right, we better get on to number two yeah. here, guys. Yeah, yeah you This right. gonna be like a two-hour-long episode. All right, Chris, number two. Go ahead. All right, so number two was actually the scenario design and the, the peril phase. A lot of what you guys have already talked about. Love the extensibility. Uh, love the flexibility. I think what I'll hone in on a little more here is actually the theme. So I, I originally thought this was going to be a campaign uh, game, like Mike had mentioned. Not disappointed that it wasn't, honestly. And and part of it is that there's something refreshing about just getting to to pull it out, play for an hour, and then be done. Um, There's plenty of other games I've got on the shelf for extended adventures, right? And so it's fun to have uh, something a little different in the collection where we can just pull something out. Play through a scenario. It's it's got a little bit of that flavor. And I, I really do like the theme. I, I know one of the things that all the off games have gotten ribbed for a little bit is kind of having generic themes and sort of generic fantasy tropes and things like that. Maybe in other games that might bother me more, but in this one, I'm totally okay with it. They start off with like a paragraph. That generally describes like the story, how you got there, what you're trying to do. There's a few lines of texts uh, along with the peril phase, explaining what those blue, uh, green, and red actions are, what what's happening to the characters at that point. And honestly, it's it's like just enough flavor for me to feel like you know this is fun, this is an experience without being too much. And like I'm actually starting to tire a little bit of games where I'm like, oh god, hold on. Got to read three cards worth of text before we can move on to the next thing. You know, it, it's light. It's fun. I feel like the the theme that they have matches the kind of the weight of the game itself. And it, I don't know, it, it all fits. It all works really well for me.
2: Absolutely. So my number two, I'll try to be quick since uh, we're going a little bit long here. And my number two was also the activation cards. Uh, but this one was mixed for me. I'll agree with all the pros. I like the limited choices. I like the kind of dwindling uh, choices you have and having to refresh the cards, as we'll discuss in the design discussion. What I don't love is, first of all, the upgrading while fun and while I like how quickly it happens. I do find that the effects don't seem that varied to me in the core game. And it does make me a little bit concerned. Whereas I think the enemy variety is great in the core game, I think the scenario variety is great in the core game, I do not feel the same about the player abilities and the different class abilities. It seems like they might have too few nozzles, as you had mentioned, Peter, to really make the upgrades different and like new classes different. Now, I'm sure I'll be proven wrong, but I am worried that they might have to like add more complications and new types of tokens and stuff to make more variety possible. It's just something, it's, it's kind of a wait and see for future expansions. In the core game, it's fine, but I, I'm worried that they might not have as many ideas for new classes and things as I hope they do to keep the game going. The other thing, and at first I thought this was a problem with the game as a whole, but now I'm pretty sure it's just a problem with two-player, so it's kind of giving away my design discussion, but I'm not sure you should play this game two-player much, or at least two-player the way they say to play two-player. And that is that uh, the action system does not see feel balanced well for only two characters, mainly because they activate twice and because they have so much life. And uh, the kind of two main problems with this, uh, first of all, the rest action already sucks. That's kind of another complaint I have about the action cards. In Warhammer Quest, each class had one type of their action cards that had one die instead of two, and they kept that here and put it in rest. But it makes no sense. There's no reason the rest action can't also be two dice to start out, like that you can't heal a little bit more. I don't really get why that choice was made. But also, the rest action is boring, and here's a big problem in two-player again especially. You can... If you can get your rest action exhausted then you can wait until all your cards are exhausted, take two damage, and unexhaust them all at once without having to actually spend that rest card ever. And it's such a weak action generally in two-player that you don't want to do the rest action. And I've, I've gone entire games never resting, and it kind of breaks the entire tension of like dwindling resources and dwindling cards. So don't love that. Again, mainly in two-player, works better in four-player. Yeah, that, that, that's basically it. So just some complaints there, especially with two-player, but
0: with like kind of the action system and the upgrades overall. Well, after Mike brought you down, I'm going to bring you back up again. My number two is the resource pool, or the success tokens. I really like how this works. I like having a pool of resources. Like I said, I do think it is a little bit limited in the fact that you're probably going to use them every time you attack, unless you need to explore, and then you'll probably use them when you explore. I don't know that they're so scarce, because a lot of character special abilities will give you resource tokens. Maybe not a lot, but it seems like I've had it quite a bit. And uh, some of the cards, as you take actions, will give you resource tokens. So I do like this, though, as an option. It's something you have to commit before you roll your dice. You say, I want to add one, two successes to this activation. And you will get those in addition to whatever you roll on the dice. And one thing we haven't mentioned, and I hope somebody brings it up, because actually it's not in mind at all, I just remembered... They have exploding dice in this game, and I love that too. So that's my also honorary number two. I like the way the resource pool works, but I also love exploding dice. So one of the six sides of the dice will give you a success, which I always mark with a success token. That's what made me think of it. And then you get to roll the dice again. I love exploding dice, and I do love the way these success tokens work. And I love that it gives you a little bit of, I need this action to succeed, so I'm going to throw in a couple success tokens.
2: All
1: right, Chris, get into your number one. What's the big news? All right, so the big number one. uh, I have been super optimistic up until this point. A bit of a sea change. Uh, This is a bit of a downer. And it kind of goes along with the exploding dice idea. But generally speaking, I would say that this game swings hard. At least in the experiences that I've had with it, the games that I've played... There's a lot of randomness. There's a lot of entropy in the game. And I have found that that has led to both really strong performances where we've just slayed it and just absolutely <laughs> getting our backsides handed to us because things were just not going well. So some of the uh, the sources of entropy, we've got the the dice, both the white dice and the black dice with pretty limited re-rolls. There's like one character that allows you to do a re-roll. There's a little bit of dice manipulation. You do have the tokens, which does help. But I almost feel like the... I mean, the tokens definitely boost the action, but they don't necessarily like... It's a different kind of mitigation than, than re-rolling, right, because you have to put these things in ahead of time, and they may or may not pay off uh, ultimately, right, um, depending on how how the dice come out. So we've got that. Enemy selection, most of the—or uh, or perhaps all of them say, you know, for the first— stack of enemies put in you know these packs of maybe three trivial enemies and one formidable or one of the i think challenging sets so there's different combinations and whatnot that it's kind of up to the player to decide how to put those in and frankly they're not super balanced i don't think you can just randomly pick three and assume that's going to be a similar situation every time right and so you have different enemies that could all possibly combo in different ways. They're going to show up at different times because you are generally having the heavier monsters at the bottom and the lighter ones at the top, but most of these still at least have one set of formidables at the top, and I've at least had one game where all of those suckers just came out right at the beginning of the game, and it, it hurt. It hurt real bad. <laughs> Locations sometimes are random, and boy, sometimes I just pick the wrong ones. The exploration deck... A lot of randomness there, and while usually you hope that it's going to benefit you, oftentimes it doesn't, and sometimes just you think you're going to get a boon and you just get a, a kick between the legs. It's like why? <laughs> uh, so you know, I think the it keeps things interesting, and it certainly powers the replayability. But I found that in a lot of the scenarios. I've almost found that those exploding dice needing to be able to have a few of these explosions adding up and and getting more tokens is almost necessary to take out some of these big guys, given the rate that the enemies will come in in certain scenarios. When you're laying a new enemy down almost every turn in front of each of your characters, the, the sheer speed that they're coming at you versus the fact that you only have one attack card to use I've lost a lot of games. Let's just put it that way. I've I've <laughs> lost a lot. Losing is not my favorite thing. I do wish that there were ways to, to control it a little better. I wish that um, another game that comes to mind is Bastion, which has a similar idea of taking different sets of enemies and mixing them together into a deck. And it falls into, I think, some of the same challenges where those enemies can vary pretty distinctly in how difficult they are And if you're not really familiar with that, you don't know which ones to put in the deck. It just kind of says, well, pick pick some out and put them in the deck. (laughs) Um, And I wish that there was actually more instruction about literally use this set of enemies. Um, And I think the same could maybe apply to this game at least... Well, you start um, and you're still getting used to how these enemies work and whatnot. I'd like to see a little more prescription in how you build out the enemy deck and which locations you choose just to perhaps remove a few variables and give, you know, at least early on uh, to give a smoother approach to the game, make it a little easier to onboard.
2: Yeah, I can't disagree with anything you said, Chris. It's definitely swingy. The dice definitely adds luck and lots of things add luck like the enemies as well. I had my downer for number two. I mean, not a full downer, but some criticisms. But my number one is a pro, but it's funny. It's uh, the same thing you and Peter just mentioned, which is the the dice and sort of the randomness. For me, I, I also love exploding dice. These dice are very similar to the dice in Street Masters. Clearly, the Saddlers like this general idea in that even the the worst result is still in some ways a positive result, the only side without a success uh, token on it still gives you a defense that you can stop some enemy damage that might be coming at you. And I really like this. I like see, – see, I find except for the exploding side, the dice are fairly consistent. Like you have a very strong expectation that if you roll two dice, you'll get at least two successes. And that tends to be true. Like, yes, you can roll way better or way worse than that, but you have a very good expectation probability-wise that that will work out that way. But I love the exploding dice. I love the just joy of rolling a critical and then that becomes a critical and that becomes a critical and suddenly you're doing like eight damage on one turn. Yes, you can totally unbalance the scenario and mess things up, but it's just a lot of fun. And I have more fun with the game when the dice go crazy than uh, probably with anything else. So even though it sounds like it was more of a negative for you, Chris, I think for me, it's, it's actually one of the key sort of reasons i i really enjoy the game and that's totally gonna vary by i think how you feel about randomness how you feel about chaos in your games um i'm i'm generally a fan of more chaos for better or for worse but uh not everybody is so i think the game might hit you or not hit you somewhat based on that
1: well, don't get me wrong. When it goes well for you, it's awesome. It's like the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Um, but boy, when it doesn't go go well, and I had, uh, I sat my sister down, uh, the two of us played through a game. We got crushed so hard on one of the easy levels, too. I'm like, oh, this will be fine. This will be a great experience for her, and just crushed. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I, I don't like this game.
0: Well, and that's the hard part. When something's so swingy, and you are trying to introduce it to new people, and they have a yeah. bad experience on their first time, it is You know, it'll kill it. Both of my kids won't play the game again. And that, I don't don't know that I had the same swingy experience. Maybe with one of them I did, and that's why they didn't want to go back to it. But yeah, I mean, if you get the bad part of the swingy, the bad part of the, as Matt Leacock calls it, cone of possibilities, like, it, it can, you know, really hurt people's impression of the game.
2: Yeah, and I don't think that's unique to Heroes of Terranoth, but maybe it has slightly a worse issue with it, potentially. I may
1: also just be really bad at this game. I'm just going to put that out.
2: <laughs> even, even though you can have eight success tokens on your characters?
1: <laughs> well, because I cheat. That's how yeah, I win.
0: I no. cheat. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, Peter, what's your number one to close this out? All right. So my number one, I actually thought this was going to be everybody's one number one. I'm surprised. And everybody kind of mentioned it in one way or another. But I don't know if anybody specifically said or called this out. And that's the card actions. Basically, you have four actions available to you. Actually, I think that was Chris's number five. You yeah, expl- my number two, dude. You just got to pay better attention to the
2: podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I am shocked it's not everybody's number one is really what I, I'm saying here. Yeah, I mean, it's the heart and soul of the game. And to be honest, for me, it's the biggest disappointment of the game. There's just not much to do. You get to attack once, you get to explore once, you get to aid somebody else, and you get to rest. And so... I I typically like games with limited options, but maybe not limited dwindling options, and maybe that's the part of the game I don't like. And like Chris said, I don't know that I've ever—the only times I ever upgrade anything but attack first is because I'm trying to do something different and hoping that it'll work out, and it never does. And just being able to attack more than one enemy, I don't know that I've ever picked an attack card that doesn't attack multiple enemies, too. Because if you get that really swingy, good roll, and you're only fighting one enemy, well, it doesn't do anything. So, I mean, unless I was fighting a really heavily armored boss, and I knew it, and maybe I'd get one that was piercing, it is such an advantage to be able to clear two or three enemies with one attack action, and you don't start with that. So, I don't know. I I didn't love the obviousness, at least in my mind, of the upgrade path. I didn't love the limited actions that you have in front of you every turn, and the dwindling limited actions, and for me, it just got kind of samey, and yes, there is a lot of variety in the mission itself, where, like, different enemies will spawn at different rates, and, you know, you'll have to get your upgrade cards at different ways sometimes, but it all boiled down to me in the end of, and I'm kind of getting into final thoughts here, but... It's just too limited set of actions and too limited replay for me. So I do have some positives to say in my final thoughts, though. So let's go on to somebody else, though. Who else wants to start with their final thoughts? or Anybody have any reaction to that?
1: I, you know, I, I definitely hear you. I, I can imagine different people having different opinions uh, on those limited choices and kind of a, the dwindling nature of it. I think there are heavy constraints on the game. And I think the constraints certainly can uh, yield creative opportunities and kind of yield situations that we wouldn't ordinarily think about or, or encounter just because they're a product of this series of constraints. Now, does that make it fun to someone? Fair question. And I think it could go either way, honestly.
2: Yes. Oh, here, Well, I'll just jump in with my final thoughts because I can also respond to you, Peter. So, overall, I I really do like Heroes of Terranoth. I'm glad it's in my collection. I have grown to dislike two hero games more and more. I think the balance is not right. I think they have too much life. And this is something I feel very similarly about Imperial Assault. Although there, it does bother me less. But even in Imperial Assault, with the same thing, I had to create a variant in terms of uh, player movements, to not kind of break many scenarios. And, you know, maybe there's something that could happen similarly here. Like, I was, I was toying with the idea of, like, when you get to half-life, you get some kind of negative, because in a four-player game, that might represent one character actually being defeated. So, yeah, I think the game is a lot of fun. It is very accessible. I think it's got great variety. I'm really excited to see where they go with expansions. I imagine there will be some, and I will probably pick up at least a few of them. I love the scenarios. I love the enemies. I, like Peter, am not a huge fan of the action cards. When Warhammer Quest, the card game, came out, I saw it as very much inspired by another cooperative game called Space Hulk Death Angel, which was an either-card-based game where you had, like, a limited—it was only three cards there for each little team of uh, Terminators— and you would uh, have to use them one by one until you got them back. Well, no, you, c- you couldn't use the same one you used last turn, so it wasn't as limiting. You just couldn't, like, attack over and over again. But I actually still prefer the way actions worked in that game to this and kind of the limitations that happened there. I don't feel like the actions are balanced. I think we all kind of agree on that, like attack and explore. Well, really, for me, it's just rest. I do think explore <laughs> is just as good as attack a lot of the time. I do think that aid, since it boosts any action, is basically identical to attack and explore because you make somebody else's attacker explore better. So for me, it's only the rest action being boring. But um, yeah, I would say try not, you know, learn the game with two characters since that's a little bit simpler to manage. But once you're ready, even if you're playing solo, I still recommend you try to play with four four characters. And yeah, I I like the game. I think it's, uh, especially since it's not too expensive, I think it's definitely worth checking out. I want to see where they go with it. But yeah, definitely not one of my favorite co-ops of last year. I don't think it would have made like my top five, but it's, it's, it's a decent game. It's got some good stuff going
0: on. All right, so we've heard a lot of my opinions on the game. Now, there are some people I do think this game would be good for. If you want to introduce somebody to Lord of the Rings, I actually call this game Lord of the Rings Living Card Game Light. Because it has very similar things. You're fighting enemies, you're exploring locations, pulling enemies from the shadows to in front of you, you know, to engage them when you do your attacks. A lot of things are very similar, obviously way lighter here than they would be in Lord of the Rings. But I think if you want to introduce somebody to Lord of the Rings, I think this might be a good first step game for that. Also, if you want somebody who doesn't want a ton of decisions, I think it's a fine game to play with them. Somebody who wants to just sit around, having a good time, you know, chucking some dice, doesn't really care, wants to more live the story of what's going on than than caring about winning or losing or, you know, having good or bad luck one way or another. So I do think there are some people it's good for. The big thing for me, and I, I don't hate the game, don't get me wrong, it's not going to be at the bottom of my list at the end of the year, but I do think that it feels samey to me every time I play it because I always want to upgrade the same way because I always kind of want to attack or explore only. I think Mike's idea would actually have been great. Just take the rest action out altogether and just have three cards and you can bounce back and forth between those three. I think that would have been a much more interesting way to do it. But for me, it just, it got pretty samey even though I played a lot of different scenarios. Now caveat all my comments by saying I mostly played two players and two characters I played a couple three player games. I never played it at four players. So maybe my whole experience is jaded by that. But for me, it just got pretty samey pretty quick.
1: Yeah, you know, pretty much agree with everything I'm hearing on both sides here. I know most of my plays have been solo using two. The last one that I did was solo using four. And I think that that was more fun, a little more more diverse. There's a little more to it, uh, more character interactions. So I think I'm going to be doing that more often. Uh, you know my uh, I'm enjoying the game it's uh I wouldn't build a game day around this thing I wouldn't build a <laughs> game group around this game but I got sleeves on my cards I got a Plano for the tokens you know it's gonna be sticking around for a while so definitely looking forward to expansions because I do see some opportunities uh, that we've talked about here for creating more upgrades that might perhaps make it more enticing to upgrade your aid or heaven forbid upgrade your rest <laughs> maybe they do something really interesting on one of the new upgrades for those. That could really spice it up a bit. So I've got my fingers crossed for that. We'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, and I will say I agree with that. I I would not not play an expansion for this. I actually do look forward to it and hope they do really find a way to expand some of the other options. My comments stand as is, but I am looking forward to expansions going forward.
2: Yeah, and I'll say briefly, although I'm not 100% on this game, there are many complaints. I bought three Fantasy Flight games basically all at the same time. Uh, Here's a Terranoth, Arkham 3rd Edition, and Discover Lands Unknown. And this is definitely the best of those three for me. And that's pretty much without question. And it's also nice that it's the cheapest of those three. (laughs) And I think has the best replay of those three. So if you're a Fantasy Flight fanboy looking for good co-op games from them, they came up with a bunch at the end of the year. I do think this is the best one out of that crop
0: to check out. Cool. All right. Well, let's get on to our design discussion. And this week, we're going to talk about that rest action. So I know there are lots of different ways to do it. Let's start with you, Chris. Do you have any other games
1: in mind that, that really stuck out to you that either did it really well or did it really poorly? So I was thinking about this, you know, when we uh, chose this topic for the design discussion, trying to think of what games, you know, outside of Gloomhaven and Heroes of Terranoth being pretty clear, very literal rests. Um, And as I was thinking about the idea of rest, thinking that it's it's kind of like an expansion and contraction, right? And so you have these actions or these opportunities in various games to expand, to do cool stuff, but at some point you have to contract. And there's generally some kind of a cost associated with that or some kind of uh, maybe an opportunity cost. Uh, You're not able to do something because you have to do this contraction. And a few things that came to mind that maybe are not literal rests, but kind of function in that kind of expansion and contraction shape. I was thinking of Hanabi, which maybe is kind of off, uh, off the wall here, but like Hanabi, I'm thinking about you're either playing a card You're giving a clue, and both of those are really driving forward the game. But then, at some point, you have to pay the piper, and you have to kind of rest, right? You have to discard and uh, earn yourself back some of these tokens so that you can go back to expansion. And I think from that general perspective, it's a, it's a really interesting cadence of the game, knowing it's not always, you know, uh, go, 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 go. There's always going to be kind of this, this respite here and kind of this cost where you're now going to have to reassess things. No, that's a great example.
2: That is a really interesting assessment of Hanabi. <laughs> I don't play Hanabi as well as you do, probably, Chris, because mine is all contraction, and then I'm kind of in this death spiral of zero <laughs> clue tokens, one clue token, zero clue tokens, one clue token. Uh, that usually is how it goes, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and there's there's a similar game, though, that you do think about it, I know, and that's the Dresden Files card game, and I know sometimes you take those actions early to build up that fate pool to build up for some of these big cards. So I, I think it does a very similar thing to Hanabi, and I, I do think that's a great example of a rest.
2: Yeah, no, d- definitely. I forgot about Dresden Files card game. So my thoughts on this, I was focusing less on like the rest action and more just sort of the dwindling cards in a consistent fashion idea, and I see competitive games doing this a lot, maybe even more often than cooperative, and in a very different way. And I like them both in their differences. In competitive games, and here I'm thinking of the Game of Thrones, not the card game, but the board game, where you have these leaders that add to your fighting ability, but you slowly use them up until you get them all back. Very similar game is, and these are all Fantasy Flight games. (laughs) Maybe they're the ones who really like this mechanic the most. But a similar game is uh, Lord of the Rings The Confrontation, the old uh, two-player sort of Stratego-esque Lord of the Rings board game. And that one also, you have these uh, sets of cards. As you play them, they uh, slowly run out, and you're left with very few options often. And I love that in competitive play because beyond just the tension of which resource to use when, and uh, like what are you leaving yourself for, and am I holding on to strong cards or using the strong cards early? How do I survive kind of my low turns until I build back up again? I love that the information is often perfect. Uh, it is in Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings of Confrontation. So it feeds into kind of the tactical decision-making of both you and your opponent. I know that you've used that huge card. Now I can make very different decisions based on your, your strength being depleted for a while. So I love that in competitive games. Now, in cooperative games, and a big one we didn't mention, although Chris, you mentioned it earlier, is Spirit Island very much has decreasing action cards until you eventually need to rest. Mm-hmm. I like in cooperative games that instead of it being like, because clearly you don't care if, <laughs> you know, if, if you know which cards I have available and which cards I don't, that doesn't like, help you beat me in a cooperative game like it would in a competitive game. So here the interesting thing becomes that rest action and how far, you know, kind of do you push your luck. Because I think in a, in a perfect world, you want to achieve usefulness on every turn until you are finally out of cards completely and can gain them all back again. But what often happens is you don't plan quite right, things go differently, and you have to take that rest action early. It's not as efficient. You are losing actions in the game. That's certainly true in Spirit Island. And I love that because it uh, just, in a very simple mechanic, you have all these cards and you don't get them back right away. It increases drastically sort of the tactical landscape and the decision making you have to make. So I think uh, both in cooperative and competitive, a, a similar mechanic with the slight different inclusion of the rest action are really, really cool. And I'd, I'd love to explore more games that kind of use that concept. And again, just to go back to Heroes of Terranoth, the kind of big complaint I had here is that at least, uh, especially in two-player, that the rest action doesn't really work as intended. And it is too easy to consistently use all your good actions, get your rest action exhausted through uh, player or enemy abilities. I know the worst one is the wizard class where they can just choose to exhaust one of their cards. They can friggin' take away the need for a rest action every turn, every time they want to. So I think Heroes of Terranoth didn't quite stick the landing with the rest action being as interesting in its choice as they could have. But yeah, in games like Gloomhaven, Spirit Island, it really sings, and it adds some tension to the game that I really enjoy.
0: Well, and I think part of the reason for that is, and I'm going to go a little even broader here, nobody likes lose a turn in a game. And sometimes rest action feels like lose a turn, you get to pick when you lose it, but guess what, you're losing a turn. I think this thing that Spirit Island does very cleverly is you're not really losing a turn, you're losing like one-eighth of your turn. Because, you know, it's just a little thing you do at the beginning. Yeah, you can't put more influence on the board, but you still get to play your cards, which is, for me, like 90% of what the turn is. So you might lose a little bit there, and I think that's where the rest action is interesting. The hard part is, you have to make it a tough choice, so you don't want to make it something that they could do every turn. You don't want the benefit of doing a rest action so good that you want to do it every turn, but at the same time, you want it to be something you're dreading doing, but then you don't dread the turn you're doing it because you're not actually losing that turn. So for me, that's super important, that it doesn't feel like a lose a turn, that it's more like, okay, yeah, you don't get to do this one cool thing, but
1: you still get to do these five other cool things on your turn. It's definitely nice when there is a clear decision involved, uh, uh, some kind of weighing of value when you're trying to decide both, like Mike was saying, the timing of when am I going to do this, and then whatever kind of benefits there there might be. I'm going to disagree with Mike a little bit in that, so for Heroes of Terranoth, I actually wish that everybody had the ability that the mage has in order to make a decision about either I'm going to you know somehow exhaust or use my rest action without using its ability, and then come my next turn, I'm just going to hard write up all of my cards and take those two damage or, or some kind of penalty, because I feel like there's a little more strategy and choice there. Now, I do admit, and I think this is what you were getting at, that like I would almost do that all the time, and maybe that's something that needs to be addressed. Maybe that rest card could have more benefits to it so that it was a little more of a desirable choice because at the end of the day, now you're still like, well, the rest is more or less just wasting my turn, or I can blow through and take two hits and not waste my turn, which sounds pretty good. But I do like when there is certainly a strategic decision that's to be made, and preferably when I still get to do something. Let me play the game. Anything that prevents me from playing the game is is not what I want to be doing.
2: Yeah, 100% agree with both of you. And you're right, Chris. It is entirely, in the case of Heroes of Terranoth, a question of balance. The rest action, in my opinion, is so subpar that, especially in two-player, where, again, you have the life pool to do this. I think in four hero games, you are dying so much more quickly that you can't really afford to just plink yourself for two damage and never rest. But, yeah, I think it's so subpar there that it becomes kind of a non-choice when you're able to make it a non-choice. I think, to go back to what you were saying, Peter, I think Gloomhaven did a great job with kind of offering the best of both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Because you have that short and that long rest action. Long rest is a loss of a turn. But you get a lot of really great stuff there. You can pick exactly which card you're losing from your deck. You get to heal some. You get to refresh all your items. Like a ton of things are piled up that will make your future turns a lot cooler and a lot more effective. And that short rest is painful to do. Yes, you get to immediately act again. But man, you might lose your best card. have to like keep on shuffling through to try to get a different one. You don't have your items back. Like a lot of the cool stuff you can do doesn't come back. So I think that was a really genius move there to kind of give the best of both worlds. If you hate losing turns, you never have to lose one, but you're not going to be able to be as cool and as effective with your actions when you do them.
0: Yeah, and you know, Conan did that too. That's not a cooperative game. It's a one versus many, but every turn you got back like three of your action gems, which basically lets you do more cool stuff. Or you could take a long rest and get back a bunch of them all at once. So that was another one where, you know, those two games, I really like that one aspect of them where you could choose to kind of like take this painful, oh, my gosh, I don't get to do anything. But it builds you up for so much cooler stuff later on. Although I will say in both of them, I still don't love the fact that I have to lose my turn in the interim.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One thing I found with Gloomhaven was just that uh, because you have the grid system and because there's geography involved, right, there's some tactical decisions being made, that's having a real effect on what kind of arrest you think you're going to use when the time comes. Because you could either set yourself up for a long rest by backing away from the enemies or waiting until you cleared a room and you haven't quite gone to the next room and say like, okay, this is a good tactical opportunity for me to do a long rest. Whereas, you know, if you're in the thick of it, it won't even be an option on the table uh, because you haven't set yourself up for that. And so I think that brings a nice richness in that, that long rest is really only a viable option under certain circumstances that you may or may not have set up for yourself.
0: Yeah, I didn't even think about that. But you're right. When all of us can long rest on the same turn, so we all kind of, quote unquote, lose a turn at the same time, that's always the best. And you're right. A lot of times, none of us will long rest if we're in the middle of this battle. Well, maybe Jerry will, unless he's stealing our coins. But
1: (laughs) Yes, this is coming from someone who definitely had their character killed while long resting, because I did not (laughs) work that out very well. (laughs) That's funny.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of this comes to... There's just a lot of benefits from sort of this mechanic. First of all, as Chris talked about all the way back at the beginning of this uh, this episode, pretty much, it's great to have... I, I like dwindling choices, especially for new players, because it kind of simplifies things, and not every turn is like an analysis paralysis nightmare. So I think that's fun. I think tactically it is interesting to have your resources change and get lower and for you to have some kind of cost to get them back. I think there's a lot of benefits to this, and it's a very streamlined thing to do. You can have consistent cards, you can have fairly simple cards, but just this, like these choices you give to your players suddenly expands the system in a great way. So I'd say for anybody designing like a simple card game with like an action-based card game, consider doing something like this you know even if you just have like like i just thought of this this would be kind of cool uh you know maybe maybe we'll make it what if you had like a deck builder where you start out with a six card hand and the next turn it's a five card hand the next turn it's a four card hand you have to do some kind of cost to get back up to like your six card hand similar idea similar kind of mechanic at work there almost like a you know stamina or exhaustion system in some games but uh, just the idea of dwindling resources until you take a rest. How are you going to time that rest? How are you going to make it work tactically for you? I think all those things are really interesting, and it, it's a great thing to think about for your game design. Uh, how might that concept integrate to just up the tactics
0: with almost no additional rules overhead at all? I'm actually going to disagree with you pretty strongly on that <laughs> that last statement. I don't like it. I you know thinking back to that Death Angel game. For me, it's way better, and Scythe does this too, where you just block off one action, and the next turn I block off a different action, the next turn I block off a different action. I'm not a huge fan of dwindling resources as the game goes on. You say it's good for new players, but it's not great for new players to have their most actions available to them on the very first turn of the game. So I don't know that that's exactly right. For me, I get it. I mean, you know, one of our games we designed did have a rest action, and we ended up taking it out because it was never fun to do. Yeah, actually, Spare Parts had a rest action when we first did it, and we took it out of that that one as well.
2: Yeah, so maybe, maybe I like it more in theory than an actual game design. Because <laughs> you're right, we, we have we have axed it from two of our designs so far.
1: <laughs> well, one thing that I really would like with rest is because I, I guess I feel like when a rest is just... Um, It's just a calculated part of like what you do, right? Like it is the cost of doing business. You're just always going to have to rest. It feels like a drag, right? Like it feels like, but I'm just playing the game, right? Like I'm doing the normal things and then I have to rest. Like why? Whereas I feel what's really compelling, although I'm not sure if, uh, you know, any examples coming to mind, but like, let me push it. Let me do something particularly cool, something maybe out of the ordinary, but then make me pay for it. Right? Again, with that expansion and contraction, it's like, let me do something that seems super powerful, something that is beyond just the ordinary turn, but now I, I have to deal with kind of the consequences. But hey, you know, I, I brought it upon myself because I wanted to do something really remarkable.
2: Yeah, and I do think Peter's example of Conan, again, a one versus many, that accomplishes that perfectly, hmm. both on the hero side and on the overlord side you can go for broke, like destroy your entire resource pool to do some crazy stuff on your turn and then be very sad for quite a while afterwards (laughs) as you uh, recover from it. But, you know, if you want to be like Conan, if you just want to jump into the middle of the room, execute five different people, jump onto a table, throw a chair at somebody, you can make that all happen. Uh, You're just, you know, going to be sitting down having a drink for a couple turns after that to uh, be useful again. Nice.
0: But I don't think you have to lose your whole turn. Again, we we pointed out in Spirit Island, yeah, you lose something significant, more presence on the board, but you're not losing your turn. You still get to do the cool thing in that game, which is play your cards. So there is still a cost, which I think there has to be a cost, right? There has to be something, or you could just rest every turn. You don't want that as a designer, but you want that cost-benefit analysis to, to tick in. So, for example, we were actually just designing a spare parts character last night. You know, I didn't even think about it this way, but... You take a little bit of a hit on one turn, you lose a fourth of your total actions to get more actions on future turns. We didn't do it one for one either. You get a lot more actions on future turns. So hmm. it's it's kind of neat where you can make that choice still. But again, we're not taking away your whole turn. We're taking away you know, a quarter of your turn. I think that might be the way to do it. You know, If somebody's got two actions, I'm not even a huge fan of taking away one of their two actions. I, I almost feel like it should be more of a fourth, Or more, Certainly, I think it can work. Because even if you've got two actions, at least you still get a half a turn. You're getting something out of it. That decision, that way to make it work, I think if you're putting it in your game, just make sure you're paying attention to everybody at the table while you're playtesting when that rest action comes up. What are they doing at that time? Do they all check out and go check their phones at that point? So for me, I would think that it is really important to make sure that they are not checking out when that rest action happens.
2: Yeah, so I guess uh, if, if we're going to kind of close the discussion, can we all sort of agree that Spirit Island and or Gloomhaven are maybe the gold standard of this kind of rest mechanic in action, one or the other or both?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, and I agree with Peter that I, I think Spirit Island has has that top, uh, yeah. that no, top I th- rank.
2: I think I agree with that as well. So, yeah, so there you go. If you want to have a great rest action in your game, be Spirit Island. <laughs> <laughs> just rip them off, or yeah, or well, I mean, I, I think I think Peter's right. You know, like build in the choice. Don't waste the entire turn. Make them pay a hefty cost that is painful. Um, I think that that's a great kind of grade A goal to set for yourself if you're exploring this kind of
0: mechanic. Right, and just remember, painful doesn't have to be boring. That's the key to that.
1: Sure.
2: All right. Well, Chris, it has been amazing having you on the show.
1: Guys, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. Where is the best place for people
0: to, like, if they want to talk to you or do you have any content out there, where can they find you?
1: (laughs) I've heard about this thing. I think it's called Slack. I feel like every (laughs) episode we mention it.
2: (laughs) Yes, but uh, I agree with Chris. Uh, Chris is very active over on the Slack, one of our most active members. So thank you for that. Uh, I've, I've had great discussions with you. So we'll just leave off by saying go join the Slack Go play any of the games we mentioned today. We mentioned a lot. Stay tuned after the post-credits to hear a discussion of the mind. Chris, it has been amazing having you on the show. Hopefully we'll get you on again uh, soon.
1: And for
2: you and Peter and everybody, good gaming. We'll see you at the next
1: stop. I thought it was we'll see you at the Steve stop. Was it not that anyway? Oh,
2: that's... that's...
1: Or see you at the next Steve? Was that... Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, what, oh, what was it, man? That was the best. Oh, it was, was we'll terrible. see you
1: at the next Steve. Yeah, see you at the yeah. next Steve. Classic.
2: <laughs> classic, classic, classic
0: co op cast humor, right there. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Co op cast, your one stop for cooperative game news and reviews. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate, they provide our bumper music. Also, check out Colin on his YouTube channel, One Stop Co op Shop. And follow us on Facebook at One Stop Co-op Cast. Finally, join our Slack group by emailing us at MVP Board Games for continued discussion on these topics throughout the week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.
2: I'll say uh, probably my favorite thing, and this goes back to Chris's contribution to our end of the year episode. Chris, you have some of the best stories about playing games with your family members. (laughs) <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I'm still struck, like, this one has really stuck with me, just the the beauty of you playing, uh, What's it The Mind? With your grandfather? Is that right?
1: <laughs> no, that was, I think Dave had the uh, the, oh, the grandfather wait. story. Crud, my wait, my wife what, and I, we, no, we that, played... That, that's the, what it
2: was, yeah, it was, it was you, you were like the the, the uberkind of... Uh, or w- Wunderkind, I'm not even using the right term.
1: Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you, ki- kind of kind we were, but... <laughs> you,
2: but yeah, you, you were you were like the master of the mind with your wife and had... Gosh, didn't you have like a full win and then you played through the entire set again
1: blind? And it's yeah, we like, got through 12 levels blind, which yeah. uh, which was amazing. But uh, the, the thing I wonder about, though, I think it was a couple episodes ago, Peter, you like made a reference to counting in the mind and how somehow that was like, not cooth How do you play? Because... Of course you count. How else do you play that game? Oh, you're kidding me, right? Are you trolling me right now? Well, wait. Can 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 we, Chris? Can
2: you uh, here? So this will be like after after dark.
1: All right, after dark sounds good.
2: Uh, <laughs> Chris, can you uh, can you like define what you mean by counting? Because I, you know, I I might be in the middle of this one, but I I do not like specifically have in my head like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I just have a general sense, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, yeah. I know about how long ten, 10 numbers feels, about how long 20 numbers feels, and I adjust that as I play with people to, like, kind of get a sense for what their 10 and how it compares to my 10. Mm-hmm. And that's how I play the game, and it tends to work out pretty well. But I am not, like, specifically counting digit by digit, like, a metronome. Yeah. Um, is that kind of what you mean? Like, you actually do, like, count that specifically in your head? Uh, metronome
1: is, is the perfect word to use. Uh, yeah, no, we, uh, we do. And, um, I think it's, part of it might be that we're both musicians. And so, Kind of like finding that tempo, and again, I mean, not, we're not we're not tapping, we're not doing anything uh, to give sure. that away, but just in in the head, like I, I think that we managed to kind of just find this tempo. I don't know where it comes from, but somehow, uh, you know, we get there, and as we're playing these cards down, we're realizing, wow, they played thirty six right when I said thirty six in my head. I guess we're you know we're in tempo at that point, right? And so once we got to blind. That's that's how we were able to accomplish it is because we somehow had established this uh, this tempo and counting in the head and it ended up working out pretty well even though you don't have that feedback mechanism then because you can't actually tell when you know like you can't tell what number they're playing when you're playing blind but even if they you know if my wife like (laughs) played a card just right when I set a number in my head I'm like oh. That's probably—you
0: know, we're on tempo,
1: right? She didn't play it on the offbeat. She played it on the downbeat. Great. We're still in the sync. You know, it's so interesting. Uh, Peter, I know you probably
2: want to jump in here, but before you do— um, Oh, no, I'm
1: just steaming over here. It's fine. So. <laughs> well,
2: no, so, so, well, that's funny because I hear Chris say that, and I have no problem with it at all, and you're steaming. We both really enjoy the mind. Well, I think all three of us really enjoy the mind. Because I've—the fact that, like, my hackles get raised when I hear the idea of counting in the mind is because it's used in a negative sense. You know, like, this game is dumb, we just count and we win. Mm -hmm. But the way you described it, Chris, kind of sounds like a beautiful thing, you know, like, you're not cheating, you're not doing something that is physically manifesting that makes the game suddenly automatically get won, you are, you know, in the exact same way that I feel like I'm breathing with the player I'm playing with and finding, like, sort of that general sense of a number, you're doing it in a slightly more systematic way, and, I think it's amazing that you all can keep the same tempo going, not just in a single hand, but for multiple hands in a row, and have that incredible, like, uh, you know, empathetic, simpatico, like, kind of relationship with uh, the game and each other going. I think that's great. So counting in that way, like, and and I'm also a musician. I'm a singer and a guitar player, and yeah. So like describing it musically makes it sound not negative in any way, shape, or form, and I. I'm kind of interested, you know, I'm not saying I'll play the game that way every time, but I'm sort of interested to try it with my wife now with that understanding of playing the game and see if we can find that same tempo match, because I think that would be an
1: interesting skill to try to master. I will also say that it does not work kind of round one to four, I would say. <laughs> like the, the early rounds, because there's so much sure, of a gap, sure. it's it's no good. Um, but there's... Well, it would
0: also take too long. You don't want to s- you count... Too- well, I mean, every round is exactly 100 seconds. What are you talking about? that'd be a little painful i don't don't really want to play the mind if that's how it plays yeah i'm kidding (laughs) but all right
2: so peter (laughs) what do you think buddy i mean there's a little so so we've had three design discussions and we're having two reviews
0: (laughs) yes well uh, all right what i will say is everybody is allowed to play the game their own way even if it is one of our games i don't care like whatever way makes the game fun for you then do it
1: granted with that being said you're wrong Ah, Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) So, but no, like literally though, I'm trying to figure out like, what do you do? Like you just, you just feel it, but you don't have some, I mean, there's always some kind of a tempo. I guess I'm just trying to understand how you and your fellow players like understand that and feel that.
0: So for me, it's more reading the people at the table. And again, this is, I'm in sales, so maybe that's just you know, the skill set that I have Mm. that, you know, that I choose to use instead of using it some kind of a timing mechanism. And we fail a lot. The first, I mean, I expect to lose the first game with a new group by turn three or four, but we're starting to feel each other out. Mm -hmm. We're starting to see, okay, he's starting to creep a little bit in. He's leaning forward. She's leaning forward. She's leaning back now. Okay. I kind of get a feel for what that means. And for me, it makes it really special when you get those numbers that are off by one right. And if you get them wrong, okay. Well, then you lose a life. It's okay. Yeah. It's, it's just a game. You know, I don't expect to win the game every time. I want to... For me, it's, it's almost like a party game, like we were talking about with Just One on our last episode. Mm-hmm. I want to have fun with the game. I, I don't care about winning or losing as much as just seeing everybody at the table groan because you're one number off or wait a minute, you've been playing fast all night. Why the heck did you just go slow when you were two numbers off? Like, what is going on here? Right, right. Like, what were you waiting on? So, for me, if you're waiting, like, you're both about to play a number, and you're, like, two and three numbers off of the number that's down, and, like, that is an interesting, like, battle of minds slash, you just look at each other in the eye, and you're just like, What am I feeling here? Like, you kind of went fast, and you kind of typically slower than me, so maybe I'll back off this time. Like, I love that, you know, trying to outthink each other, but in a good way, like trying to outthink each other the same way, so you're on the same page. Mm -hmm. So, and I just love feeling the tempo of different people when they play the game. It's really interesting how somebody will be slow early and then speed up later and you just kind of get that sense of tempo from each player at the table and for me that's what I love about it it's that mind meld because everyone is kind of going at their own pace but everyone is now kind of coming to the middle trying to figure out okay if I start playing faster then you're going to start playing faster or Hmm. you know if you notice I'm faster than you then you'll slow down a little and I'm going to speed up a little and then maybe we go the other way and I start going too fast and you start going slower. And so now you, we, we kind of go back and forth on that. So for me, that is what I love about the game. I, I love failing and figuring out why we're failing, you know, and then getting that tempo together without having to count or do anything else. You know, it's, it's funny to jump in again as sort of the middleman. I,
2: I can totally see other players looking at what either of you are doing and considering it in some way to be like against the spirit of the game is uh, or cheating you know what i mean <laughs> like somebody might say like chris you are you're being too systematic the game wants you to be more like loose and just kind of feel things out somebody might say peter this game is supposed to be like entirely mental while you're bringing like physicality into it you're supposed to like have a complete poker face and not give away anything and I disagree with them. I mean, well, they can feel whatever they want to feel. <laughs> but I, I think either way of playing sounds fascinating. I think either one can work. I've mostly done it Peter's way because I'd never even thought about doing it Chris's way. But yeah, I mean, I I think it's <laughs> maybe it's a critique of the game that it can go either way and like the rules are vague enough that, that maybe it's not wrong. Um, but I I like the game a lot and I don't mind that it has sort of that flexibility in, in multiple ways there.
0: And I will say, playing the way that I play, I don't think it's possible to beat it blind. We have had some sure. really good <laughs> that, rounds. <laughs> well, and that, yeah, so that, Chris, by the way, that was a funny thing,
2: like, why I, I thought of you as a god, and I'm not saying you're not, but, uh, When you were like, I played the entire
1: thing blind, and I was like, how? I don't even understand how that's possible, man. (laughs) Yeah, well, it, it is somehow possible. But, you know, what's interesting, though, is the fact that, like, the way that Peter plays the game, the way that I played the game, neither of us, I'm assuming, set out to play it any particular way. You know, like... Uh, yep. I, I'm guessing your group just kind of naturally had, yeah, that physicality, like you were using that and it was, you know, you, you, it was fun and it worked to some extent. And like, and that's how it emerged. And for us, like we fell back to familiar ideas, like, you know, when I'm in, in the percussion section counting in my head all the rest until I finally hit the crash cymbals, like that's just something that was internalized and something that came out naturally. So it is neat to see how uh, that game provides these opportunities for something unique to happen in each group. Well, and the one thing
0: I'll say about it is we both think it's a great game and that's funny and we're playing it completely differently, even though we're not playing it completely differently. We're playing by the same set of rules. We're playing by the same everything. And, you know, if we were sitting across each other at the table, we would fall into rhythm with each other. I still wouldn't be counting. Maybe you would still be counting, but I'd figure out your pacing, Right, right. you know, mentally, And I would adjust my game. And that's, to me, what's the best part about the mind. I really do think that game is, every time I play it, I just have so much fun with it. Hey, guys. Hey, what? Yeah. Wow. Don't rest. It's time to say bye.
2: Are we all whispering now? I kind of like that. (laughs)